Well, we are privileged to have with us this morning Pastor George Lawson. He is the senior pastor of Baltimore Bible Church, where he has served since 2013 when he planted that church. Prior to coming to uh, Baltimore Bible Church, George taught weekly Bible classes and served as the outreach coordinator at Hope Bible Church, and then as an associate pastor at the Bible Church of Little Rock. He earned his uh, bachelor degree from Washington Bible College and his master's of divinity degree from the Master's Seminary. He has been married to his wife, Jennifer, for almost 25 years, is that correct? And uh, they have three children, Karis, Micah, and Kara. George is a friend of Pastor Tom's, and it was a privilege to get introduced to George and to invite him to come to speak to you men this morning. I know you will enjoy his ministry of the word to us. Let's welcome him as he comes. Well, it is a, uh, a great privilege uh, to be here uh, with you men uh, this morning and uh, I bring you greetings from uh, Baltimore uh, Bible Church and uh, very grateful for uh, the ministry that the Lord has allowed me to have there. Uh, it's been such a blessing to get to know uh, Tom and his wife, uh, Sheila. They were uh, out for a marriage uh, conference that we had at Baltimore Bible Church uh, uh, earlier uh, this year and uh, uh, just, uh, or last year, but we're just uh, very grateful to get to know them and uh, to know you as well. And um, uh, God must have something uh, wonderful in store because uh, uh, there were a number of things that could have prevented me from being here today. Number one, I had the wrong date. Uh, for the men's breakfast, so uh, I sent in my itinerary to uh, let Brandon know when I'd be here, and uh, he's looking at the itinerary and saying, uh, something must be wrong because uh, we're expecting you to be here this week, and uh, uh, you have on your itinerary coming in at the end of the month. So uh, that was the, the number one mistake. Uh, I was on my way to a, a, a board meeting at the Master's uh, Seminary University, and um, uh, as I was leaving the house, I switched my jacket because, you know, it was a little chilly outside. And after I got to the airport, realized that my wallet was in my other jacket. So I had to call my wife so she could travel to the airport and give me my wallet. Uh, then I jumped on a flight from BWI in Baltimore, uh, transferred to another flight in Las Vegas. And after I got to Burbank, you know, felt my pockets again to make sure I had everything and realized my phone was missing. Uh, somehow my phone fell out of my pocket at the gate in Las Vegas, uh, so I'm here without a phone, but thankfully I do have an iPad that gets me around, uh, so I'm very grateful to be here because there were a number of things that could have prevented me uh, from being here, but uh, just uh, grateful uh, to be uh, with you men, and I'm, I'm thankful to, to see that there's an in and out here too as well. I saw that uh, as I was coming from the, the airport, so uh, anyway, it just makes me feel like I'm back home in, uh, in California a little bit. Uh, but if you would, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And while you're turning there, uh, let me ask you a question. If it was your job to create a book to convince the world that Jesus is worth following and worth dedicating your life to and even worth dying for, would you include a story of the most prominent apostle who would be the principal leader of the Christian movement after Christ, leading spokesman for Christianity, caving in under the pressure of a slave girl's question. That's, that's really not the kind of convincing testimony that you would want to release to the public. 
That's the kind of story you'd want people to forget. You know, you could just imagine an editor, you know, taking a look at the Bible and saying, you know that story about Peter caving into the slave girl? Like, let's, let's not let that get to print. That, that's not the story that you want to release to the, to the public. You know, shaking in front of a slave girl isn't really a good look for Christianity. But in Matthew chapter 26 and verses 69 to 75, we find the familiar story of Peter's three denials. And you wonder, who let this one get to print? Ancient writers would often exaggerate their victories, skip over their defeats. I was in uh, Rome recently for a trip with Ligonier, and uh, we saw a number of, of uh, uh, different uh, ancient, uh, uh, you know, just testimonies to the, to the glories of their leaders. You know, that's what they would chisel into stone, all the glories, all their victories. But the Bible, on the other hand, is painfully honest about the greatest hero's defeats, like Noah, the only man found upright in his generation, preserved through the judgment of the flood. But after the flood, he planted a vineyard and became so drunk on the wine that he exposed himself and uncovered his nakedness. And his son humiliated him. Abraham, the father of the nation Israel, patriarch of the faith, gave up his wife on two separate occasions as being his sister instead of his wife. And then later on, he fathers a son through his wife's maid. Judah received the promise that the Messiah would come through his line in Genesis 49. It was prophesied that the right to rule would not pass from his house until the Messiah came. But this same Judah also sought after a temple prostitute, not knowing that it was his own daughter-in-law who was playing a trick on him. David, greatest king of Israel before Christ. Every other king in Israel is compared to David. He was considered a man after God's own heart composed some of the most beloved Psalms in the Bible, but this same David also committed adultery with one of his most committed soldiers' wives and then had that same soldier killed so he could cover up the pregnancy from that adultery. And then there was Jonah, missionary responsible for the greatest revival in history, a whole nation repenting at his preaching. I mean, imagine that. The entire nation repents. But then after the Lord granted mercy to Nineveh, he desired the destruction of the same people that he was sent to preach to. And we could just keep going on and on, couldn't we? That the hall of faith is a corridor filled with failures. And the Bible does not attempt to hide the bad and the ugly from its pages. Shocking for ancient literature. The holy pages of inspired and errant scripture are stained by the sins of its fallen heroes. And that's one of the evidences that we have that the Bible is totally reliable because you don't tell stories like this unless you're absolutely committed to telling the truth. And that's what the Bible does. The Bible is committed to telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And we find the truth of Peter's failure in every single gospel record. Why? Because it actually happened. It actually happened. The scripture is not going to sugarcoat these events for us. MacArthur notes in his book, The Twelve Ordinary Men, he says, no one speaks as often as Peter, and no one is spoken to by the Lord as often as Peter. No disciple is so frequently rebuked by the Lord as Peter. And no disciple ever rebukes the Lord except Peter. No one else confessed Christ more boldly or acknowledged his lordship more explicitly. Yet no other disciple ever verbally denied Christ more forcefully or as publicly as Peter did. No one is praised and blessed by Christ, the way Peter was, yet Peter was the only one Christ ever addressed as Satan. 
And the scriptures don't hide Peter's faults from us, which is probably one of the reasons we seem to relate so much to Peter. Because we can probably see a little bit of ourselves in Peter, can't we? He's, he's got a personality that's big enough for all of us to, to fit in. One author says Peter was a rare combination of courage and cowardice, of great strength and regrettable instability. And at no time was Peter more unstable than in this instance. Let's take a look at Matthew 26. I'll pick up at verse 69. Matthew 26, starting at verse 69. It says, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let's uh, bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you so much for this, your word. Now, Father, we pray that you would use it, Lord, to sink deeply within our own hearts. And Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What we find here in this story of, of Peter is uh, really a stark contrast. There's a contrast between Jesus' confession as he stands in the court before the Jewish Sanhedrin and, and Peter's cowardice as he sits in the courtyard before bystanders, people of no authority. And if you think that Peter is the rock that your faith is resting on, you might want to think again. First of all, we have this private inspection that happens in the courtyard in verse Verses 69 and, and 70, where you have Peter sitting outside in the courtyard and the servant girl came to him and said, you two were with Jesus the Galilean and he denies it, denies it before them all. Apparently at this time, Peter wasn't ready to accept the sufferings of Christ, that the suffering that Jesus himself predicted would happen, that Peter would suffer. Matthew 16, Jesus said that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. But Peter is still waiting to see what's going to happen according to verse 58. Peter should already know what's going to happen, that Jesus is going to be killed just as Jesus said he would. He's too curious to stay away, but he's not courageous enough to step forward as a witness. But it's actually a, a brave move in, in one sense that Peter would even be this close. Because where are the other disciples? The other disciples aren't even there except for, for John. So here he is, he's, he's here, he's trying to be brave, but it's a bravery in the power of the flesh. And how do we know that? We know that for several reasons, and I borrowed this, this uh, little outline from, from MacArthur, he mentioned this, that, that Peter boasted too much. How, how do we know that, that Peter was operating in the flesh? Because he boasted too much before this instance. If you remember back in Matthew 26, in verse 31, when Jesus said to him that you will all fall away because of me this night, what did Peter say? Peter says, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. He, he trusted too much in himself. I'm never going to fall away. He also prayed too little in Matthew 26, 41. 
Jesus said, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But when Jesus came to his disciples, what did he find them doing? They were all sleeping. Jesus says, so you men cannot keep watch with me for an hour? You can't even stay awake for an hour? He acted too fast when Jesus was being arrested in the garden. In Luke 22, 49, when those who were around him saw that what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? You know, they at least asked the Lord the question, you know, do you want us to strike with the sword? Peter doesn't even wait for an answer. He just pulls out the sword and starts working his way through the, through the crowd. He, he acts first and asks questions later. And Jesus has to tell him, put your sword back into its place. And now Peter is following too far. Jesus is in the court, but Peter is following him from a distance, verse 58 says. Far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. In John 18, it lets us know that after Jesus was arrested, that Peter and another disciple, undoubtedly the apostle John, followed Jesus to the court of the high priest. And Simon Peter was following from afar. The court of the high priest is uh, what's known as the palatial palace or the palatial mansion. Uh, Archaeologists have actually discovered an unusually large mansion located outside the the southwest corner of the Temple Mount uh, with the footprint that matches the description here. Size and location of the the building as well as the, the evidence of a fire have led many to believe that this was the house of Annas, the high priest. The layout of the building was designed like four rectangles around a courtyard in the middle. And from the courtyard, you could actually see up into the reception hall where Jesus right now would have been under investigation. All the details fit. And what you have here is uh, John, possibly knowing the high priest, is able to get in and Peter waits outside. But flip over to to Luke chapter 22 because I want you to see, you know, just kind of fill out the scene a little bit as Peter makes this denial. Luke chapter 22. Take a look at Verse 54. Verse 54. It says, Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them, and a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it and said, woman, I do not know him. Here you have uh, Peter. He's in unfamiliar surroundings, but he's doing his best to blend in, you know, to kind of stay underneath the radar. This time, nobody knows why he's here. He's just focused on finding out what's going to happen to Jesus. And maybe in case they call for testimony, he wants to at least be within earshot. You know, maybe they might say, is there any man here who would defend Jesus Christ? Maybe he's thinking the whole scenario in his mind that I'm going to stand up at that moment and boldly defend Jesus Christ to declare that I know him. He's an innocent man. But here you find Peter gets the question kind of unexpectedly. Somebody unexpectedly recognizes him. And while they're talking about this Jesus who tore up the temple grounds, you know, only days earlier, there's somebody who's, who's watching Peter, looking intently at him, verse 56 says, fixing her gaze on him. And apparently she recognized Peter from earlier that week, and she blurts out, this man was with him too. 
you know, they're, they're talking about Jesus and say, that, that guy was with Jesus. He was with them too. And it's obvious there's some back and forth in this exchange because she makes her accusation in a number of ways. If you flip over to, to John chapter 18, in verse uh, 17, you have this question that, that shows up in, in the same exchange. It says, the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Starts out with a question. Over in uh, Matthew 26, it goes to an accusation. And we already read it earlier. She says, you too were with Jesus, the Galilean. It goes from a question to an accusation. And then he, he denies it. Denies it before them all. But then she makes the, the positive identification. Verse 56 of Luke chapter 22. This man was with him too. It goes from you were with him too to now speaking to the others. This man was with him too. She, she identifies him before them all. And he denies it. Woman, I do not know him. And this was all part of this first denial. And you can just picture it, can't you? I mean, Peter's doing his best to be invisible. But unexpectedly, this nosy slave girl blows his cover. And what does he do to cover himself up with? He covers himself with a lie. I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not one of his disciples. And Peter hits the mat for the first time with a right hook out of nowhere. My question for you is, have you ever been there? Maybe it's your, your first day on a new job, first day at a school, you're being introduced to somebody that you're trying to make an impression to. Unfamiliar territory, you know, you've never been here before, still trying to figure your way around. Stakes are high, maybe there's a promotion that might be at stake, maybe a scholarship, acceptance into a new group that you might be thinking about, somebody that you want to impress. You might even plan on making a formal stand for Christ later on, but, you know, you've got to strategize that. You know, I'll think about how I'm going to introduce these people to Jesus Christ and let them know that I'm a Christian. You know, you, you might even have some of Mike Gendron's tracks in your back pocket and waiting for a, a lunchtime, you know, where you can sit down with somebody and kind of slowly introduce them to, to who you are. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, somebody identifies you and says, that, I, I remember that guy. Aren't, aren't you one of those guys that goes down to that church over there? You're, you're not one of those guys who, uh, you know, believes in traditional marriage, are you? Is that the kind of church you go to? And all of a sudden, you're on the spot, and you have to give a defense for your faith. Jesus is now the topic of conversation. You weren't expecting it. You're new. You're, you're a nobody. Nobody really knows you, but, and surely they're not going to ask for your opinion, but, but now you're identified. You're pulled out. And down you go. It all happened so quick. No, I'm not. That's, that's not really me. I don't. That's not what I believe. When Jesus told Peter, you will deny me, I'm sure this is not what Peter had in mind. He's probably thinking about something more formal, you know, like a, a formal, you know, a, a opportunity to stand up and give defense of his faith. He's thinking, like, I can muster up the courage for that. He's not expecting that it's going to come out of a question from nowhere from a slave girl's mouth. But here he was around the courtyard, a little slave girl catches him off guard, and he stumbles and falls to the mat. Where did that come from? Just amazing how unexpectedly temptations show up on our doorstep, isn't it? But that's how Satan works. And the Bible says we're not ignorant of his schemes. So those unexpected battles were, were taken down. Like Elijah, 
who stood on top of Mount Carmel, faced off with 450 prophets of Baal. Elijah mocked them, called, called on them. You know, call on the name of your, your gods, right? He stands up boldly, calls down fire from heaven, calls down judgment on these false prophets. But then after all this, one woman says, I'm going to take your life. And Elijah heads for the hills, hightails it out of town. What's that all about? It's, it's the battle that he wasn't prepared for. Samson, he tore apart a lion with his bare hands, killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, picks up a city gate on his bare back. But the battle that he wasn't prepared for was a woman named Delilah. And she was a more fierce enemy than any that he had faced. David faces off with a giant, nothing more than five stones and a sling. But David was completely unprepared for the battle that took place on his rooftop as he's watching a woman bathing below. Temptations will show up on your doorstep unexpectedly, but this is how Satan works. You have to, you have to be prepared for the battle ahead of the battle. By, by the time the battle comes, it's too late to try to get prepared. You, you, have, to, you have to be ready so that you can be ready. <laughs> you have to be ready ahead of time. But not only was there this private inspection in the courtyard, there was also a public investigation at the gate. Look at uh, verse 71. It says, when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Another servant girl saw him. At this time, Peter moves away from the fire. He, he, he heads toward the gate, the exit, but he can't bring himself to actually walk out. Still held by his curiosity, his devotion to Jesus. He's got a true love for Jesus. Still wants to see what happens, so he hangs out at the gateway. You know, maybe he's waiting for some time to pass so that people would forget, forget him. So he moves under the shadow of darkness, you know, away from the fire, away from the light. But after some time, Matthew says that another servant girl who was obviously accompanying the others points him out. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And, and just to help you out with the context a little bit here, when this slave girl identifies Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth, this is more than just an identification of where Jesus was from. It was actually a way to ridicule Jesus. One author points out that the, the Galileans were considered a joke among those at Jerusalem. When they visited Jerusalem at festal seasons, their manners, their dress, their accent were the jest of the citizens. The moment they opened their mouths, that their nationality was discovered because people, the people spoke with a heavy accent. The Galileans were despised by the proud Judeans. Judea was the, the home of orthodoxy, the shrine of Israel's sacred institutions. The Jews would have assumed that outside of the holy city and the schools of the rabbis, the shadow of the temple, there was nothing worthy of note. The rabbinic circles accused the Galileans of neglecting the traditions and the worst among the Galileans, you know, that the, they looked down on the most, even the Galileans would look down on them, would be the people from Nazareth. Out of all the cities of Galilee, you have uh, Nathanael, who was from Cain of Galilee, according to John 21 in verse 2. When Nathanael heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, how did he respond? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, even the Galileans looked down on the Nazarenes. Nazareth was a, a hick town. To say somebody was from Nazareth was like saying, you're from the backwoods. It's a place of violent, lawless characters, people who didn't really have much culture, so when people really wanted to put you down, they call you a Nazarene. 
Pharisees accused Jesus of being this Nazarene. Church fathers would later document that the Jewish prayers cursed Christ as a Nazarene. It was a put down. So when Peter is approached with this association with Jesus of Nazareth, it was was really a way to insult him, to insult Jesus in front of him. They're, They're shaming Peter by his association with Nazareth. You're, you're, not, you're not with that backwoods teacher from Nazareth, are you? Has that ever been your experience? Have you been ever insulted because of your identification with Jesus Christ? You know, you're not one of those crazy evangelicals, are you? I remember I was uh, witnessing to, to somebody at one point, and they said, you know, you do, you, you, you do watch like the History Channel, don't you? <laughs> I mean, seriously, you don't believe in that book. You don't believe in all that nonsense about talking snakes and talking donkeys and men living in the belly of a fish. You know, what kind of moron takes that seriously? And here you have uh, Peter, who's now starting to become ashamed by his identification with Jesus. And how do we know that? Look at verse 72. It says, and again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. That's what Jesus is to you now? You know, before Peter identified Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. And now he says, I do not know the man. He's just the man. He steps up his denial with an oath. This would have been a a pledge invoking the name of God to make his statement seem even more believable. With an oath, he says, I do not know the man. Essentially calling God as his witness. This is my confession before God. I, I, I don't know him. I've never known him. It's a complete rejection to associate with Jesus Christ. Refusal to associate with Jesus Christ. Same kind of confession that Jesus would make before the unbelievers, right? I never knew you. And this is what Peter is saying about Jesus. I never knew you. Peter's denying any relationship with the Lord and calling God to bear witness to his testimony. May God bear witness and record this statement, I do not know him, to escape the ridicule, the scrutiny, temporary affliction on earth. Peter is now willing to place himself in opposition with heaven. And he hits the mat for the, for the second time. Goes back to his corner, bloodied, bruised, exhausted. <laughs> Two rounds with temptation and Peter's lost to both of them. And for a period of time, it seems like, like Peter's going to get a break. In Luke 22, it says that about an hour had passed. So this is, this is over a period of time. Over hours, not minutes. And just when Peter thought he was safe, he receives this this knockout blow with this positive identification by the bystanders. Look at verse 73. It says, a little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said. Matthew just says that there were bystanders who identified Peter by his accent. As we mentioned, the the Galilean accent was distinct. It was public knowledge that Jesus and his disciples were from Galilee, but 
there are a lot of men from Galilee. How, how do they know that this one was with them? What makes this specific Galilean a suspect? Flip over to, to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Take a look at verse 26. Talking about this same, it's a parallel account, talking about the, the same event. In verse 25, it says, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And look at verse 26. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? You're the one that cut, you're the one that, that cut my, my cousin's ear off. I, I know you. It's one of his relatives. Didn't I, didn't I see you in the garden? And then Peter here is denying it again, denying it again, and then immediately the rooster crowed. This is what we're talking about. He's being positively identified. You're, you're the, the ear chopper. <laughs> I, I know who you are. I recognize you by your accent, but I was there to see you when you cut off my cousin's ear. Swinging the sword like Zorro. Yes, it was you. Not only do you look like him, you sound like him. And in a panic, Peter does all he can to escape this identification with Jesus. And he even acts like an unbeliever at this point. He begins to curse and to swear, I do not know him. And immediately the rooster crowed. Now in addition to calling God as his witness, Peter takes it a step further. And he calls down curses on his own head. I'm, I'm telling you, may God curse me, may God crush me even right now. You know, cross my heart and hope to die. You know, often when people make a solemn vow, they would say, may God do more so to me if I'm not telling you the truth. May, may God strike me down if I'm not telling you the truth. You know, it's exactly the kind of thing that Jesus instructed us not to do in the Sermon on the Mount. But he's saying, may God do this to me. The Bible says, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And here you have Peter calling down the curses of God upon himself. And it was at this very moment while Peter is calling down the curses of God on his own head that he's brought back into reality with the crow of a rooster. And everything that Jesus said floods back into his mind. And it's amazing the way that temptation has a way of erasing our memories. You know, that we don't think about the consequences when we're being tempted. One, one preacher said that sin is what you do when you're stupid. It's like all of reality escapes your mind. But, but here it's like the, the reality is brought back in after he's finally publicly denied Jesus. He's fallen to the temptation. And, and this is when everything starts to become clear again. What have I done? Here he is left with the reality of a sin. Passing pleasures of sin or the protection in this case. And the rooster was like the alarm clock and Peter finally wakes up. And what's terrifying here is that this is the second time that the rooster crowed. It wasn't the first time. Remember Jesus said in uh, Mark 14, 30, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And in Mark chapter 14 and 72, it lets us know that this is the second time that the rooster crowed. Peter slept through the first alarm. The first warning was already given. The rooster had already crowed once. And it's like Peter never even heard it. 
It's the second time that the rooster crowed that all of a sudden everything comes back to his mind. This is what the Lord was talking about. One ancient tradition says that he never heard a a rooster crow from this day forward without tears. And what was worse than the, the crow of the rooster was the gaze of Jesus. In Luke 22, 61, it says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter at this very moment while he's denying him. The Lord takes a look at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before, rooster crows, you will deny me three times. From the courtyard, if you remember again, as we described earlier, from the courtyard, you could actually look up into the hall where this trial would have been taking place, where Jesus was being held up by the the high priest, where Jesus was bloodied, bruised, swollen, covered with spit. One look at Peter said everything that needed to be said. Jesus catches the gaze of of Peter. And you wonder, what what did this look look like? What was it like to, to catch the eyes of the Lord during the very moment where you're denying that you even know him. What was this look from Jesus? Was it a look of anger and disgust like, Peter, how could you? You just wait till I get my hands on you. You just wait until I'm able to confront you personally. Was it a look of disdain and reproach like, Peter, I I don't need to say that I told you so, but I told you so. (laughs) Was it a look of frustration or shame, condemnation? I don't think we have to imagine what that look was about because what else could it be but a look of love and forgiveness? Because that was the very reason that Jesus came into the world in the first place, right? Not to serve, but to, not to be served, but to serve and give his life up as a ransom for, for many. This is, he, he's, he's on the way to the cross at this very moment to take upon himself our sins. His look would have been a look of forgiveness. And after his resurrection, Jesus makes sure that Peter knows that, that Peter, you're still included in the group. <laughs> Mark 16, 17, it says, but go tell his disciples, go tell his disciples and Peter. This is what the angel said. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The ground for your assurance doesn't lie in your performance. It's in his performance. It's what he does. How do we know that this was a look of forgiveness? Because when Peter was calling down curses on his own head, that God did not answer that request. (laughs) At the moment when he's saying, curse me, may I be cursed, may you strike me down, God. How do we know that it was a look of forgiveness that God didn't say, okay, I'll do it. No disciple fell lower than Peter. He boasted too much, he prayed too little, he acted too fast, he followed too far. But there was also no disciple that was more greatly used than Peter. (laughs) Because after this, he boasted in Christ. He preached Christ. He followed Christ. He was willing to die for Christ. And man, Peter is an example for us. And I'm not sure how far you followed how many times you've boasted too much how many times you've acted too fast how you've prayed too little we don't 
I don't know every man's story in here. But Peter is an example that, that when I do fail, that I can turn to Christ who offers his forgiveness. And when Jesus died on the cross, when he hung on the cross, it was for people like Peter. And there's a little bit of Peter in all of us, isn't there? We can look to the cross of Christ in the same way that Peter could look to the cross of Christ and receive from him his forgiveness. So where are you today? Are you warming yourself by the world's fire? The Bible says don't love the world, the things in the world. Are you trying to blend in to the world around you as Peter did? Are you boasting in the cross of, of Christ or are you boasting in yourself? Are you cultivating a greater fear of God than man? And as Peter wept, do you weep over your sins? <laughs> At the end of the verse, in verse 75, it says, he went out and wept bitterly. But he found a place of repentance. We find that Esau was sorrowful, but he found no place of repentance. Judas was sorrowful, but he found no place for repentance. But Peter was sorrowful, and it led him to repentance. And he trusted in the power of a, a great Savior. <laughs> and that's what we have. We have a great Savior, don't we? Hallelujah, what a Savior. That he's willing to forgive. Do you trust in the love and forgiveness of a great Savior? Matthew 26, Jesus says, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> we have one who forgives us of our sins. Amen. Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much for... This account, uh, Father, and uh, just a, a powerful story and uh, one that reminds us that we have a powerful Savior. Uh, Father, we thank you for the forgiveness uh, that we have, that even though we, we fall and we fall hard, even though there have been times in our lives when we've denied you, when we've turned away from you, uh, Father, that there's a, a Savior, Lord, who looks on us with forgiveness and a Savior who doesn't answer the request to, to bring condemnation, to bring judgment. Even though we deserve it, we're worthy of judgment. Oh, but Father, we're grateful because what we have is a, is a Savior who went to the cross and bore on himself our sins, the penalty for our sins, so that we might be set free and that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, Father, I pray for any who are here today who have not yet turned to Jesus Christ, Lord, that today would be the day, uh, that it doesn't matter how far they've fallen away from your truth, from your commands, uh, that there's a Savior whose grace is greater than our sins. Now, Father, may you receive glory today. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen.